Well, friends, we are now in our last chapter of the book of James. It is a chapter where um, it would be super easy to cherry pick exactly what we want to hear, exactly what we think applies to us, to the exclusion of others, which is actually in direct contrast to what James is trying to communicate to us this morning. So let's pray together and we will study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. It, it occurs to me that as a society, we've gotten really, really good at dividing up things. And not only do we like to divide things, but we like to label the things that, that we have divided. We like to keep things separate from each other, and, and we like to judge the other side. And, and so what we have is we have Republicans, and we have Democrats, and we have West Bradenton, and we have East Bradenton, and then, of course, there's the island people. And we have black and white and Hispanic folks, and sometimes if Pastor Sung is lucky, they'll throw in Asians as a group as well. And, um, and we also like to divide by generation. We have the builders, and we have the boomers, and the millennials, and sometimes if Pastor Hope is lucky, we talk about the Gen Xers. But typically, in general though, we, we keep our divisions in our thoughts. We, we, we contain them, except for when it's socially acceptable or advantageous for us to share them at a given time. Then we're all about putting that information out. But for the most part, we try to, we try to keep that stuff hidden inside of us. But there is a, there's a hill town in Lima, Peru, that just decided to put their division right out into the middle of the public eye. There, there it is. They wanted to make sure that nobody would miss it. Both sides of the wall call it the wall of shame. That's, that's what it's called, the wall of shame. The wall is 10 feet tall. You see how long it is. It is topped with a razor wire. And what it does is it, it, it uh, separates two neighborhoods, uh, San Juan de Miraflores on one side and Circo on the other side. And on one side, you have a very wealthy population by Peruvian standards. It is a community where almost all of the homes have a swimming pool, which um, is really interesting because it is an area of the world where clean water is an extremely, extremely short supply. On the other side, you have a neighborhood that is filled with cardboard and tin shacks. And the original genesis of, of this wall came out of a concern from the wealthy side that if they didn't do something, then the poor people would get together and come in and raid their neighborhoods and steal all their stuff, which seemed like a really good idea to them at, a at that time until they needed labor. Then when they needed labor, they decided that they had to put some kind of break in the wall. And, and so there is, there is a, there is a small entranceway that, that allows you to pass over from one side to another. And if you're a wealthy person, that's good for you and you can pass whenever you feel like it and you can go to whatever side you want. However, if you're a poor person, you need to have a job that allows you to get to the other side. So you have to be a, a nanny or um, a landscaper or a construction worker or something that is going to be of benefit 
to the wealthy people on the other side, and you need to have a security cleared ID to be able to do this. Now, when I describe that to you, there's a good chance that, that you unintentionally put up another division in your head where you're thinking, wow, those Peruvians can't believe that they did that. We would never do something like that. But the thing is, walls aren't always made of cement and razor wire. Sometimes they're made of asphalt or train tracks or caucus meetings or country clubs. And here in this last chapter of James, James finds himself as a pastor to people who come from all sides of all things in a divided community. And what he's going to reveal is that there are words of truth and power and hope for people on all sides of a divided world because Jesus did not come to tear us apart, but to bring us together close to the heart of God. So first, James addresses those who are wealthy. And sometimes, sometimes in the church world, when we talk about wealthy, we, we don't want to just hit right on the money thing because money makes people uncomfortable. So we'll talk about the spiritually wealthy or, or some other way of kind of sugarcoating it. But I, I really believe that James is very specifically addressing the material wealthy, the financially wealthy. And he says, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Now, there's a couple ways that we can look at this. You can look at this from the perspective of a poor person hearing this who's like, yeah, right on, you tell those rich people what's wrong with them. And of course you talked about the rich people first because they're always first. Or you could look at it from the perspective of a rich person and say, you know what, he's just jealous. He's, he's just jealous. But if you go all the way back to last week when we were at the end of James chapter 4, Actually, this is a pretty natural overflow from the thought process that James was going with last week. Last week, he was talking all about human plans and, and how while it's not a bad thing to have plans or vision, we just have to make sure that we're working within God's plan and God's vision. And James talked about the uncertainty of our earthly future. So it kind of makes sense then that he'd start talking about material wealth because material wealth, while not inherently a bad thing, hear me so clearly on this, not inherently a bad thing, can be fleeting. And it needs to be handled with God's vision in mind. Jesus paints a really stark, uh, James paints a really stark contrast between inanimate wealth, clothes that get eaten by moths, gold and silver that rust, rotting stuff, and on the other side of that, actual living, breathing people, 
people that mow lawns and pick produce and haul away all of the garbage leftovers of material wealth. And James indicates that, that we sometimes value dead objects over living people and that there's a cost to that. Have you ever given a thought about how something that you might buy, something, something that you can totally afford, maybe even something that you worked hard for and saved for, still might not be the best thing for someone else? So I want to talk about cars. First car I ever officially totally owned on my own was a Saturn SL2. There it is. Look how cute that car was. It was it was small, four-door car, very reasonable fuel efficiency. When I had that car in college, I could fill a whole tank for eight dollars. Um, very low emissions. I felt I felt good driving that car. I felt like I was doing the responsible sort of thing. Up until we had kids. And the second that our first child was born, I informed Pastor Sung that we needed to buy an army-grade tank. <laughs> now, here's the dilemma. And I, I want you to wrestle with this with me. Because, because as your pastor, it's something that, that I wrestle with and continue to wrestle with. Every day, ordinary followers of Jesus have to really think about how what we buy impacts the world around us. When it comes to the resources that we've been given, are we doing what's best just for ourselves or for the world around us? Now, you all came to church this morning. You did not see an army tank parked in anywhere out in our parking lot. So you know that instead of the army tank, we ended up with a minivan and then 10 years later bought an SUV. Why did we do that? I assure you, it was not born out of my desire to be known as a soccer mom. That was not the, the catalyst behind that. In my mind, it was all about safety. What was going to be best to protect what I love most in this world? My, my kids. It's not a bad thought. It's not a bad thought. But here's where I wrestle as, as a follower of Christ. I have this nagging question. Am I using my resources to the glory of God for all of his people? So let's play that out a little bit. God forbid that we were ever to get into a car accident. And it's my SUV up against the little four-door Corolla, little, little sedan. The odds are very good that my kids will be safe. But what about the kids in the other car? Do they matter as much as my kids do? Shouldn't every child be safe regardless of whether or not they won the so-called parent lottery? And, and what about the gas mileage on an SUV as, as opposed to a sedan? Is that kind of usage responsible? What about the emissions that it puts out into the environment? Now, hear me on this. I, I am not saying that all of us who drive SUVs are terrible people and that we need to be shunned from society, but I am putting it out there as, as someone who herself drives an SUV, similar to the way that James did to his people in his context, I'm asking us to consider 
what are our responsibilities as people who have been given various resources at our disposal towards the rest of the world that we share with everybody else? Now, there might be a couple of you who are saying, what, what resources are you talking about? We're not even choosing between an SUV or a sedan. We're just trying to get ourselves a bicycle. Does God care about us? Is there any word of encouragement for people who are on the other side of that? Indeed, there is, and James addressed them as well. He writes, be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. In this very short verse, James reveals two important things. First, the Lord is coming again. That is, that's not a question. That's not a hypothesis. That is a definitive. The Lord is coming again, and when he gets here, the economics of this world as we know them are about to get flipped upside down. Jesus proclaimed that himself in Matthew 20 when he stated the last will be first and the first will be last. Both of these ideas point to the hope that we have in the eternal kingdom of God versus this temporary life that we have here on earth, which is good news. It's good news if you're rich. It's good news if you're poor. The good news is this is not it. This is not the end of our story. The farmer waits for precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient, says James. Strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. So James isn't just saying be patient. He's saying, we got stuff to do. We got stuff to do while we're waiting in in this meantime. We need to be strengthening our hearts. We do that by exposing ourselves to the word of the Lord, by praying for and with one another. We do that by holding our tongues and, and not judging and grumbling about those around us. James gently reminds us that that we need patience because this could take some time. It is a certain. It is a certain that Jesus is coming back. But the reality is we don't know when, so we have to be patient with that. And one of the hardest things, one of the hardest things for us to wait for are signs of life. Here Here in Florida, we don't have those bleak winters that everybody else does. But remember what it's like when when you, if you've come from up north, you remember what it's like after those very lengthy, dark, cold winters to go outside one day and see that first little bud of a daffodil or a crocus coming up. It gives you hope. It gives you hope that that things are going to be brighter and better very, very soon, and then the next day there's like three feet of snow, right? And that can get so discouraging because you were so close, and now three feet of snow. Waiting for a new baby feels like a lifetime, especially when you get to that labor and delivery part. It just seems like every minute is just stretching out for hours and hours, and what seems like is never going to happen always eventually does. As an example, James writes of the suffering and patience, beloved, of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. A couple years ago, we did this large group study on the Old Testament, and for a while there, I felt like there were several weeks where I was just having deja vu because it seemed like every time I went into the class, I had to talk about another prophet who would get up, proclaim the word of the Lord, the people wouldn't listen, so the prophet would get up again and proclaim the word of the Lord, and the people wouldn't listen, the prophet would get up again, proclaim the word of the Lord, and by this time, the people were off doing their own thing, and they didn't care anymore. And it just seemed like 
Every week I'd go in and it'd be a new prophet and it'd be the same exact story over and over and over again. And some of these prophets literally died trying. But throughout the Old Testament, there runs this thread, this thread of God's faithfulness, God's care, God's mercy, but we need the patience to get there. James highlights this as he writes, you've heard about the endurance of Job. Sometimes people will say, you have the patience of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Notice something really important here. There is a period that follows the phrase, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Period. Not just to some, not just to the rich or to the poor or the left or the right or to the old or the young. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Period. To everyone. In some translations, it's translated that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, which I love because whether it's in the translation or not, it is who we know God to be. Compassion and mercy are not afterthoughts of the attributes of God. It wasn't like God got himself together and then then thought at the last second, you know, I'm going to need a little bit of compassion. We'll put a little smidge of mercy in here. No, this is the overriding qualities of who God is. In fact, he actively seeks to pour out both that mercy and compassion on his people. Never forget when you picture that wall of shame, that when the rain falls, the rain falls on the rich and the poor alike. And God's compassion and mercy likewise rain down upon all of us. So then from James, what we learn today is is that when we are wealthy, we are to be generous. And when we're worried, we need to be patient. When we have something, we can go ahead and share that with others. And when we have challenges, we can go and give them over to the Lord. Our God isn't a God who is just for some. God offers something to all of us. Jesus Christ came to tear down walls and to give all of us access to the riches of the kingdom of heaven. If you've ever studied in the Old Testament when we talk about the sanctuary and we talk about the holy of the holies, what we know is is that the holy of holies could only be visited once a year by the highest of the high priests. And everybody else was kept out at different layers and different barriers. And when Jesus came, that veil was torn so that all of us would have direct and equal access to the throne of grace. In glory, there is no wall of shame. There is a great love that receives all of us with compassion and mercy. May it be so on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray together. Lord God, we... uh, we confess that it's sometimes easier to read the word than to live the word. And it's hard to be challenged in the way that we live and the things that we do. We pray that you would help us to be generous in our wealth, that we would be patient in our suffering, that we would give of what we have, and that when we need you, 
we can give our problems over to you. Lord, hear your people as we pray, as we praise, as we ask for your glory and blessing to be upon us. In your name we pray. Amen.